Barzi, as our uh, alphabetical trip around the Ontario Hockey League continues here, we go to the city where I actually got my start covering the OHL in this league for, uh, I believe it was the Hayes FM way back in the day of Casey Sezikis uh, and the Saga. At that time, it was Mississauga St. Michael's Majors, a mouthful. Now they've uh, streamlined it to the Mississauga Steelheads. But uh, one of my favorite places to visit, uh, just because it brings me back to the old times. Had himself a heck of a playoff run with the Islanders, of course. And speaking of the Mississauga St. Michael's uh, majors, how about Dave Cameron back behind a bench? Who was, would he, would he have been coaching when you were there then? He was. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. And Mississauga also happens to be the site of probably our favorite story from the 2019 2020 oh. season. But we'll get into all of that as we explore some OHL stories with our good friend Ian Colpitz from the Mississauga News covers the Steelheads. We get to see him once a year, except not this year. Nonetheless, Ian, thanks for being with us here tonight. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Ian, if I, if I can start, I just want to get this out of the way. How shocked were you that James Hardy was again passed over in the NHL draft? Um, I, I think I was definitely more shocked uh, the first time, uh, him being 18 years old and first year eligible that season. And it's hard to pass up a guy who scores 34 goals as a draft eligible, right? But um, maybe this year he just didn't have a whole lot of hockey to play out although he was in the PBHH showcase in Erie one of the top scorers there uh, you would think that team would still find some space for him but um, second year draft eligible it's a little bit harder to uh, get into the fold with a drafted team that's for sure you talk about where he found some ice some competitive games to play and it just really Let's it sink in, and we've talked about this so much, but how long we have been away from the game. By the time we get rolling again in the fall, we're, what, 18, 19 months from the time everything stopped in March of 2020. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, crazy indeed. I'm starting to think about it uh, nowadays. And for some of these teams, you might be talking about a 17- or 18-year-old player that's going to be your captain and uh kids that are born in 2004 2005 probably half of the teams or sorry i mean uh half of each team league-wide is probably going to be 17 or 18 year olds who haven't played a single game in the league so it's uh going to be a guessing game as to who finishes out on top here when we look at this Mississauga Steelheads roster, though, Ian, like I'm, I'm looking at some of these names they could get back, and obviously a couple of local products uh, to this area in Washcrook and Schwint. But this looks like a team that could, you know, be up near the top of that Eastern Conference. They're getting a lot of players back by the looks of it. Yeah, I think there's still a good uh, mix of size and speed with that team. Um, I'm really interested in seeing uh, the defense uh, just how big some of those guys are going to be. You got uh, Ethan Del Mastro likely uh, being your top guy. He was just drafted over the weekend by Chicago. Uh, Ula Bjorkvik Holmes going to be coming back, uh, drafted by Columbus uh, last year. And uh, they're really trying to bring in Casper uh, Larson, a guy who's uh, six foot six from 
Denmark. So, so those are uh, three very big boys to uh, start defensively. And uh, as we're mentioning here, um, James Hardy's going to could be coming back too. Might be the top player uh, on this team. Definitely a candidate to lead them in scoring. If he's back, it's not fair because he dominated every game we saw him play. So if he's back again, I'm calling BS. The fix is in. The fix is <laughs> he, in. He was so nasty. <laughs> when we look back at, at where we left things off, Ian, uh, back in March of 2020, seven games to go in the Steelhead season at the time, uh, sitting sixth place in that Eastern Conference. But again, our sense as Western Conference guys sort of looking in, it was all about the Ottawa 67s and the second incredible year they'd put together. And then the Oshawa generals who really loaded up at the trade deadline. What was the feeling uh, for you and in covering the Mississauga steelheads that spring when the season came to a premature end? You know, there was some real hope around this team that they could uh, make a run for it and maybe upset somebody. Um, As you were mentioning sixth place, that would have been, put them in line to place to face uh, Peterborough, who would have been a very tough matchup. But uh, Mississauga teams, they have, uh, they have this tendency to just be very plucky and tenacious come playoff time. It doesn't matter if they're a sixth or a seventh seed. They usually uh, give whoever they're facing a run for their money and stretch the series out. It seems like that's James Richmond's calling card, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, JR written all over it. Yeah, that, that seems like every team he has, they're always that, you know, once it becomes playoff time and, you know, the chips are down, that he's going to have his team ready to play and they're going to be very difficult to play against. Yeah. It's it's tough, Ian, uh, to, to talk about Mississauga and what's going on on the ice without getting into the support that they get from the fans, which is, is not the best. Let's be honest. So after a year's absence, what's your gut feeling on, you know, how much the team was missed? Obviously there's a core of faithful, but do you, do you bleed any of that fan base from missing a season? Yeah. Um, honestly, it's probably going to be tough for them uh, coming back into the league. I was speaking with Elliot Kerr about this back in March. And uh, this was at a time when, COVID was uh, still really running rampant uh, here in Peel region in particular. Uh, things have slowed down a lot ever since, but uh, I'm, I was thinking at the time that uh, there'd be a lot of hesitancy for people to come back and he was in agreement. but um, Elliot, he's one of the most optimistic owners and uh, devoted guys that I've seen uh, owner wide league wide. So I'm sure that uh, he's got, a plan in place to uh, try and retain a lot of fans. During all this, obviously everybody's going to be very eager to get out, I think, and to just do something. So maybe just a trip to the second round of the playoffs would be something to pull in some other hockey fans because we don't see the second round of the playoffs in Toronto area based hockey teams. Wow. Wow. He went there, eh? I did, but it's probably true though. And <laughs> um, just, just on that note for people who, or maybe listening to this who, you know, don't understand what it is like in Mississauga. For somebody covering this team, you obviously build your lineup when it comes to the paper and all this kind of stuff and what you think is, you know, where the lead story is and the secondary story and all that. How much stock goes into, like, how many people are paying attention to this hockey club in Mississauga? Yeah, 
quite a lot of thought. Um, I'll give you an example. We have uh, Raptors 905 who play out of the Paramount Fine Food Center, too, and uh, they have quite a bit of support. Uh, I think on bad nights, you'll see the arena half full, whereas on uh, good nights in Mississauga, uh, you'll see it half full. But, uh, yeah, that's been just a story for years, um, and I'll credit to Elliot for sticking with this uh, franchise for a long time. And uh, he has no signs of uh, slowing down anytime soon. He's very committed to this still. Obviously both are eligible to return, but I mentioned their names um, because really I think they were their best two forwards, but in guys like Kean Washcrock and Cole Schwint, uh, Waterloo and Kitchener natives respectively, do you envision those guys getting another shot? in the OHL in their overage season, or do you think St. Louis and Florida, you know, move them on? Yeah, I, I think it's most likely that uh, they're going to be moving on. Uh, Schwint in particular, he's somebody who's uh, come out of nowhere just when he was uh, drafted in the league, reasonably high fourth round, but uh, was never really considered uh, a truly high end prospect until he was drafted by Florida and followed up with that uh, just incredible second season and uh Keen Washcrest just it's funny uh with him James Boyd drafted him in 2017 and he said at the time that uh, we probably got one of the hardest working uh players available in the draft uh that sounded a little bit cliche-ish to me at the time but uh sure enough the season afterwards he's uh, recognized as one of the hardest working players in the Eastern Conference coaches ball so said to myself, man, boy, he was right. <laughs> but uh, I think they're both most likely going to be moving on. boyd has been right in a lot of his decisions <laughs> in the time in the OHL. Sure has. Every time we talk to an Eastern Conference reporter, Ian, we express our envy that, of course, you're going to be able to see Shane Wright this season, where those of us in the West, of course, will be absent what is likely – his last year in the Ontario Hockey League, that notwithstanding. How do you feel about the schedule and the way the league has decided to do it this year with the conference-based schedule for the regular season? Yeah, that's uh, definitely the safe and probably best route to go. Um, you know, COVID not necessarily going away as of yet, but uh, just why not take all the precautions that you can? Uh, although they're probably going to be traveling uh, further East for some of their games than they would uh, if they're playing an opponent such as uh, Guelph or Kitchener. But uh, I'm sure there's lots of teams that uh, face that same conundrum. Yeah, Kitchener seeing the Sioux six times, but we don't go to Hamilton or Mississauga. Hmm. Time, t- time for some realignment, maybe. I'll have that conversation. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know you will. Yeah. When we talk about goaltending, and we've said this on another, I said it earlier today, if we're being honest, in another recording, but goaltending seems to rule the roost in this league. Now, they were James Richmond relied a lot on Kai. A lot. Yeah. You know, Joe Ranger didn't see a lot of ice, let's put it that way, besides practice. Um, kind of like my career. Are they ready to give him the starting role, or is there another plan in place, do you think? Yeah, there's uh, really not much of a choice outside of uh, Joe Ranger at this point. Uh, They do have a 2003 signed uh, Justin DeLauro, who was one of their draft picks that season. Uh, I know they're hopeful to get um, 2004 draftee out of 
St. Louis, Ben Barron's uh, into the league, but uh, those are guys that haven't played in the league at all versus uh, Joe Ranger, who has uh, you know so- somewhat of a handful of experience anyway. Yeah, and you kind of touched on this earlier, Ian, but and and way easier for guys like us who are covering the league than the executives that are involved with putting a team together and the coaches involved with with coaching them to success. Because I, I look at this as a as a bit of a wide open season, both sides. Like you're always gonna have your stalwarts. And on our side, we know the London Knights are always gonna be there because that's just the way it seems to go in the Western Conference. But truly, with two crops of rookies coming in. I, I think all bets are essentially off when it comes to who does what this season upcoming. Yeah, I'd echo that uh, completely. Um, half of these teams are going to be uh, solely 2004-2005 uh, base players or maybe uh, 2003s who were drafted uh, mid-draft but uh, didn't see any action Um the time to capitalize would have been on the 2001 and 2000 age group, but uh, that's all come and gone as of right now. So what are the expectations for the Steelheads club this year, or are there any? I think uh, league-wide, it's probably for everybody to just compete and uh, put their best foot forward. I think there's definitely the potential for uh, Mississauga to once again be at least, at least a uh, middle of the pack Eastern Conference team, but uh, they're all about development here and uh, teaching players the right way. That's uh, Jr.'s calling card. We of course call this podcast OHL Stories, and we've had the opportunity to talk to uh, a good number of storytellers over the the months we've been doing this. And uh, as I mentioned at the outset, the the Paramount Fine Foods. I had to stop myself for a second. It's not the Hershey Center anymore. Uh, Paramount Fine Foods Arena was the site of one of our favorite stories from the past, the last season that we had one. I remember Chris and I at the the end of that season kind of doing a, a wrap-up podcast, and his mind immediately went to the fish on the ice that Axel Bergfist, the defenseman for the Kitchener Rangers, picked up with his bare hand when nobody on on the arena staff or anywhere else wanted to go anywhere near that thing sitting out there inside the blue line classic story for us that year so i didn't see it we just let in the goal in uh, in power play in our power play uh, so i was so mad just skating to the bench angry probably screaming something and i hear everyone else is like oh put that take the fish away for sake and, and stuff and i just looked out and there was a fish there uh, and no one was no one was grabbing it uh, and i didn't understand why because it's just a fish right so uh I just, I was so mad, I just skated out and threw it on, on our bench, and, and and that was it. I didn't think think about it too much. I d- didn't understand why they had to call some arena attendant or or, or something else. I, I'm uh, fishing a lot back home, fish, fishing and hunting in Sweden, so that's, that's no big deal at all for me. Yeah, geez, I didn't even think of that one. Um, I, I know the game you're talking about, and I thought it would have uh, been the... Uh... Five to four Mississauga comeback. Is <laughs> oh, that what happened in the game? We don't remember yeah. that part. Yeah. yeah I do. Cole Schwint. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In overtime. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that reminds me of another one, uh, 2016, uh, 17, near the beginning of the season when uh, they had a per- a man just hop the boards and uh, run out onto the ice 
Completely. I forget what the score of that game was at that point, but Mississauga ended up winning it 11-3. to uh, Nick Haig, a guy from uh, Waterloo area, got a hat trick, and yet all everybody's talking about is this guy who uh, <laughs> runs out onto the ice. It uh, makes uh, all the major sports networks like Sportsnet, uh, TSN may have extended beyond Canada, but uh, that was probably uh, my first introduction to these guys uh, going viral in some capacity. I remember that, and I can't believe Farwell still has a job after it. I really. <laughs> well, I had a bag over my head. Nobody knew it was me. Come on. I do. Re- I remember the fish story like it was yesterday. Everyone's sitting around like, what are we going to do with this? Like, what's going on? And the arena staff are like, uh, like do we use a shovel? Do we grab a bag? Players are like, this is gross. Axel right off the bench picks it up, chucks it. Let's go. That's quite, that's quite an arm if you could uh, look it onto the ice from the press box. And that was, uh, it was no small fish either. <laughs> no, it was, it was a big one. We, we saw the guy run up the stairs afterwards. It, you know, it, unfortunately, it wasn't hard to find him. <laughs> does, that, uh, does that 2016 story when the, the fan got onto the ice rank up there among your, your best memories and stories from covering this game, Ian? Yeah, I think it's up there. Actually, it just uh, sort of sprung to mind uh, right now when you were mentioning the fish being thrown onto uh, the ice. But just in preparation for this, I'm thinking back to the 2014-15 season. That was the only year that I've been around the team where they didn't make the playoffs. But uh, I just remember closer to the end of that season uh they were in second last with the final game to go um still a point behind uh fourth place or or fourth last at this time but um michael cloud was a rookie on team uh, very promising at that time and uh his little brother ryan was one of the prospects available for the 2015 draft and you figure that if they got uh, second overall pick, they would have used it on Ryan. So all they would have had to do was lose their last game against Peterborough. But Michael McLeod goes out and scores two goals. They win the game four to two. And I went up to um, his mom afterwards, just kind of joking with them. I said, okay, how much trouble is Michael in here? And I'm just like, is is he grounded or what's happening? And she said, well, he's definitely walking home. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, flash forward to uh, the draft itself. Um, So even though they didn't have the second overall pick, there was still a good sense that they would probably get Ryan McLeod at fourth overall. I actually had uh, the lead to my story planned out. Uh, It was... The Mississauga Steelheads are on cloud nine. Sorry, make that McLeod nine. I like that. And I, I probably should have done that when uh, Mike McLeod was drafted because he actually wore number nine. But um, I didn't get a chance to use that because uh, Flint Firebirds, who, of course, were in their uh, first season, they got uh, Ryan at third overall. Uh, Mississauga ended up going with Owen Tippett. And uh, fortunately, Ryan was uh, just very, Ryan and his family were just very adamant on wanting to come to Mississauga. So they were able to uh, get a package of uh, draft picks together to make that trade with Flint. So 
even though at the time it looked like uh, Mike McLeod was uh, kind of spoiling their plans by scoring the two goals in that game and helping them win. He was helping them in the end because they got uh, two very high-end uh, draft prospects. How mad do you think the Flint Firebirds were after that trade a few years later? Both Tippett and McLeod end up at their arch rival, the Saginaw Spirit. <laughs> it's true. Funny, funny how it uh, works out that way. And it's just an example of uh, how the thing worked out for Mississauga because they had to have gotten about uh, 10 or 12 pretty high round draft picks out of that. that yeah. They're still using today. Absolutely. Tippett worked out okay, too, as I recall. You know, not bad, not a bad little career. Yeah, he, he was all right. <laughs> he might amount to something one of these yeah. days. Yeah. Tenth <laughs> overall in the NHL versus uh, fourth overall in the OHL. Uh, who can complain about that, right? Yeah, see, he can hang some jerseys. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. You right. hope not yet. Yeah, no. Not yet. No, no. <laughs> Ian, thanks a lot for doing this, buddy. All right. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. So if you've been following along with this summer series of OHL Stories podcasts, you know that we've been taking some prior interviews from the Farwell and Pope podcast and kind of repurposing them here under the banner of OHL Stories. And we try our darndest to match the guest with the city we just talked about. So having just had that conversation with Ian Colpitz from the Mississauga News about the upcoming Steelheads season... We're out of those matches. However, we don't have a guest that fits the OHL stories mold that played with the Mississauga franchise. However, we do have a player who played just seven games in the Ontario Hockey League in his rookie season and became a story that gained national attention here in Canada. He would go on to play more than 200 games in his OHL career, but it was those seven games in his rookie year and then what happened in game number eight that sets this young man's story apart. And it just so happens that he's from Mississauga. So there's the loose connection for OHL stories this week as we hear the remarkable and inspirational story of Ben Finelli. I'm giving this some thought as we're getting ready to have you here in the studio. And I'm thinking to myself now, what are we going to do by way of introduction? Both of you two clowns are far too young to understand the reference to Rocky Four because it was a movie made before either of you were born. But there's a scene where Apollo Creed is having his comeback fight against Yvonne Drago. And the ring announcer is reading off all of these nicknames. The King of Sting, the Master of Disaster, the Count. And Rocky looks at him, he says, Patience! Patience, Stallion. We'll be done in a minute, you know. So I'm thinking about this guy. We could start with, you know, former captain of the Kitchener Rangers. We could start with the uh, founder and chair of Empower, the foundation. We could we could talk about what's the 40 workout place? Used to be. Used, used to, to be. be. Yeah. But you but created that. Started that, yeah. Called and then 40? It was called 40. Yeah. Called 40, yeah. right? We could do motivational speaker. TEDx speaker <laughs> in the studio. Headstrong. Headstrong Foundation. But that, that's what Waterloo. Empower became. Right. Headstrong became Empower. Or am I the other way around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Coach of Waterloo. Co- assistant coach, University yeah. of Waterloo, men's oh. hockey team. Jacked. Obviously. Well, yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretend to. I mean, how many more things could I say before I just say... <laughs> what, we, what we should say is Cody Malone's best friend. Also true. Right? Yeah, see, that's yes. the most important one. Right? That's true. That's the, yeah. Cody oh, yeah. needs a shout out. <laughs> but in all of this, and of course we're talking to Ben Finelli. 
the former captain of the Kitchener Rangers, and all of those other things. Victus Academy, right? throw that in there too, doing some work over there. But when I sent out a tweet about your own podcast, how about that? Heroic mm-hmm. Minds. I mean, mm-hmm. just it just keeps adding up, right? <laughs> the responses I got among them were, oh yeah, I was a paramedic there that night. And everybody always goes back to that night. Mm-hmm. And of course, that would be the night when you suffered one of the most devastating injuries I think we've ever seen in a game of hockey anywhere. How do you feel about that? Not so much the injury, but that's what people... And so I, just, I don't know. Like, Does that just how we start? Ben Finelli, the guy that got hurt real bad. It's interesting because then the question comes up of would you change what had happened and who really knows where I would have been if, I, if that didn't happen. The, the biggest thing, though, and that introduction is obviously very humbling, um, a lot of failures in there for sure uh, that led me to, to endpoints of those. And the biggest thing is it was the, the community around here that was the only reason I mean everything you just named and everything I've been a part of was truly because of the support I had from as soon as I actually really when I was even home from the hospital with the letters I was getting from people obviously around Waterloo but then even outside of Canada and the States and the support from people that all that stuff was possible so to go into details on on that night and everything that happened it's it's so hard to put into words now. Like there were so many moving pieces that the biggest thing that, or the most important thing is that it was the support I had was really the biggest reason for all of that. I, when days when I didn't want to work out, well, I had 23 of my best friends in the change room motivating me to get there. Where days when I wasn't at the rink because I didn't feel like watching my team practice when I wasn't allowed, I was out in the community, I'd be at Tim Hortons and someone would reach out and say, hey, I wish you the best with your recovery. And... It was those things that kept me going. And and now today, where I try to now pursue things that I don't even have all the skills for, I'm just going as I, learning as I go, things are working out again because of support. And the podcast you tweeted out when Amber talks about how helping other people is helping her, it's almost utilizing that, that idea that the more you help other people, what goes around comes around and... Yeah, I guess that's so. That's where we start. I guess sorry to ramble on no, there, no, but yeah, I think I did. Yeah. I think I'm still introducing you. In fact, so. <laughs> Obviously, it shows that we know when you talk about Ben Finelli or when you say Ben Finelli, that night does come up. Is it? Do you think about it as much as other people talk about it? Like, or do you still think about it weekly or daily that night? No, only even when I speak about it at schools or a concussion symposium I just did on the weekend at the University of Waterloo there with some some amazing researchers and clinicians in the region and it's I almost skip ahead to the positives of it and when things started to look up, you know, when I was in the hospital and I go to the seventh day, the last day, where my where they were debating doing brain surgery and they're gluing the beads on my head and my dad comes in and says um, ben, I'm gonna, we didn't know what was going to happen at this point. And this is my crazy optimistic father says, I'm going to go start the van and bring it up front so that when we get the good news that you don't need surgery, uh, you can hop in the van and, and you won't have to wait for it to heat up or whatever. It'll be right there. And at this point, we had no idea if I was going to need brain surgery or not. And my mom and I, so he leaves the room. My mom and I are sitting on the hospital bed and 
you know, tears in our eyes trying to stay positive. And this is when the nurses come in and start gluing beads on my head in case that things have to happen fast. And then the doctor comes in at what felt like hours and hours later and said, you know, things have cleared up and you'll be able to head home here today. And that's what I want to rush to get to is when, all right, that's like the start of the journey back to sitting here in this chair now. And then we go down, they wheel me downstairs in a wheelchair um, and the slide, the automatic door is open in the hospital and my dad could not have been parked any closer. <laughs> I feel like I just walked, it, went, it was attached to the hospital. Like the doors opened and I just walked right into the van and, and then that's where support just, the influx of support was was incredible. And that's, so that's what I focus on really. I don't think I focus on that night also because I don't remember any of mm-hmm. it at all. Even if you t- tell me something, I don't, so. Have you went back, sorry Mike, but have you, have you went back and watched it? I have. I've seen it. The first time I saw it was when I was out for dinner. And after my injury, as you uh, both know, there was a lot of more occurrences of them, or at least more attention to them in the NHL and then throughout the CHL. And they were showing all those, like a little bit of a montage type Mm. thing. And and mine came up and I was just out for dinner. And that's when I saw it. And watching it feels like it's a highlight that I'd watch any other day. It doesn't feel like me, someone got hit kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So, yeah. I can tell you, because I remember it vividly, uh, how well you dealt with this in the aftermath. Because as your recovery progressed, I remember the night that you finally got back to the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. Not to play. We're way before that ever happened. But you came back to be at the rink, around the team, in public. And I remember stopping you along press row and, and teasing you a little bit. Because that video got played so much. And I was calling that game. And I'll never forget that it gets played on Hockey Night in Canada and Don Cherry is talking about it. And you can hear the soundtrack underneath of my voice. And my phone blew up with people saying, Farwell, you're on, you're on Hockey Night in Canada. So I say to Ben when he gets back to the rink, I'm like, Fanelis, you made me famous. Like, thanks. And then you could laugh about it even then. Where along the lines, Ben, in your recovery, uh, did you start thinking about not just getting well and being here like you are now sitting here talking to us, but getting back to a level of physical ability that you had been at before that night? I think there was a point, there were two points. One was mentally, and then the other one was physically. And the point mentally was when, actually my mom, it was when I, right before I moved back with the Rangers. So I was home for two months and was pushing the envelope in a, and up to a point that was okay with doctors. So it wasn't like I was going out and doing crazy things. But when I mean pushing the envelope, I mean going for three walks instead of two walks a day kind of thing. Nothing crazy. And so my schedule was go out for a walk, come back, have a nap, do a couple word searches, go for a walk, have a nap. And that evolved into balance exercises and then some light dumbbells. And then two months go by and I'm starting to get back to me. And I think at this point they started to wean me off the anti-seizure medication as well. And I think that was one thing that was making me tired at first. So when I started to get my energy back and started to feel like myself was when mentally I thought, even if it's a one in a million chance, which who knows what it really was, that's when mentally at least I thought, okay, now it's time to start pressing and, and really start pushing it. I moved back with the team. The support then energized me even more, being around like, teammates 
then I'd say about six months later, when I started to get all my weight back, because I came out of the hospital at 145 pounds, went in at 175. And then I started to get heavier than 175. And I'm like, oh, like, this is exciting. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty neat. Mind you, I did, all I did was train and go to school at that point because I was just so obsessed with getting back to me. So I don't know how I did it now, but I think that's why the improvement was so drastic was because I, it was my full-time job was school and, and exercise. And then how diet and how to just force my brain to heal kind of thing. And I think about six months after the injury, when I got back to me, got back to feeling like myself, did all the testing that showed that things were back to normal from a cognitive standpoint and physical standpoint and everything. That's when I thought physically it's really time to get going. And then through that whole summer, I trained as hard as I could and really was ready physically and mentally to play that year, that second year. But we thought as a family and with my agent and coaching staff and everything that we would take another year just to make sure. And that just gave me another year to keep training. And that's where I got into the triathlons and stuff to, to fill some time. He and, says and, so casually. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's where I got into triathlons and stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it <laughs> was... Casual triathlon today. <laughs> but so, yeah, I'd say it was two points. It was the, There was the mental point, which was two months after, and then... The where the mental and physical came together about six months after where it was really time to get going. And yeah. when you mentioned be sitting in that wheelchair rolling out of the hospital into your parents' van with your mom, I'm sure tons of thoughts are going through your mind at that point. Was one of them ever at that point going out to your van, leaving the hospital? I'm going to captain the Kitchener Ranger someday. That thought happened a lot later, but similar point when you're talking about because I don't remember it at all right I remember like as if it was a dream from when I was 10 years old me wheeling out into the van so I don't remember it clearly I just remember it because people told me and then I piece things together it's cloudy but that situation happened about a month when I was home and I started I think I still have a picture of it or my mom does of my room I started taping quotes onto my wall and by the end of those two years, that two-year journey of coming back, the wall across from my bed was absolutely covered in quotes and images and pictures. And for whatever reason, I, I watched the movie The Secret, and I know it's a little bit far-fetched. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are like, oh, you know, that attraction stuff's crazy and humbo-jumbo. And you know what? It might be. But at the time when I needed something positive and something I could you know, lean up against with these odds that I knew were so stacked against me. That's the moment where I thought, you know, maybe one day I could just hypothetical almost. And yeah, at that point it was about a month in and I remember laying in my bedroom and they sent me a Jersey back and Adam Graves sent me a Jersey. Uh, Daniel Alfredson signed a Sens Jersey. I had all those hanging in my room and just surrounded by so much motivation I guess that I I taped up in my room and had the jerseys and everything and it was at that moment where I thought just imagine like how crazy would that be (laughs) you know what before even the captain part was how crazy would it be if I skated back out there on opening night because I did that once before I got hurt and that alone was already incredible here I am a 16 year old chasing my NHL dream so still even that was amazing imagine I got to do that again and um, yeah somehow Chips fell into place, and 
obviously I was lucky and blessed too. But yeah, it was about a month after when that realization came. You just mentioned something I was going to ask next because you got to skate out essentially for a first game as a kitchen arranger twice. Can you compare the experiences? I don't think, I think if you saw the brain waves when I <laughs> skated out that second time, I think it was just flatline. There was nothing. It was just so emotional and not rational at all for those however long that the amazing fans were standing and cheering that it was there was nothing going through my head I couldn't even it was yeah like right now there's no words going through my mind that I can piece it together that that's what it was like when I was skating out and something it sounds so cliche something I'll never forget of course not but it's not the situation I'll never forget it's that feeling of having just flatlining with thought and it's so surreal is the feeling I'll never forget. Like, yeah, I don't remember if I went out, what number I went out. I don't remember exactly what, you know, how the game went to be honest, but that feeling of surreal and, and just, ah, I'm sure you could see your heart beating through your equipment. If before you're about to head down high five alley, you're in that room. Like you walk in game day. What was the whole experience like that second time? Did you go back to all year? Like, did you have the same meal that you used to have? Did you walk in and what were the guys saying and stuff? Um, they were all chirping me, obviously. I mean, it's the, it's the, you know what a hockey locker room is like. It was no, there was no sports psychologist, positivity, educated <laughs> support. It was more chirping me and don't slip and all that. So, it was, which was, is what you want. Of course. Because then you still have to play the game. At that point, which I think I tend to forget, is that I didn't, I wasn't guaranteed a spot. And Spotter made that clear. He said, even when I got to the hospital, he said, the stall's always going to be here and you're always going to be a part of this team, but you're going to pull on the same leash in the same direction as the rest of us. And even when I was cleared to play and decided I would, I had to make the team and perform and do everything just like everyone else. And so that's that was one thing I had to try and keep in mind because I knew it was going to be an emotional night for myself and my family. But at the end of the day, I had to keep in mind that after that, we got to get to work because I didn't battle all this way back to not have a chance to play. So that was that was one thing that was in the back of my mind as well. And But yeah, from the guys, it was... Just the razzing, the usual, <laughs> little more than usual, I'd say, but the the razzing that you'd expect. Yeah, don't you know? Don't put your jersey on backwards. Don't slip on the ice. <laughs> you know, make sure you wave, do the double wave. And we had the Euros telling me to do different. Actually, can I say that Euros? Sorry. We're, we're oh, okay, yeah, the European <laughs> players on the team. Sorry, uh, they do things a little differently. You know, the the different wave and whatnot. So yeah, it was more razzing, and that's that's exactly what I wanted. I not one to need anything special. Who was the more difficult party to convince for you to step back on the ice? The team of doctors or Dr. Mom? 110% Dr. Mom. <laughs> and the one thing that the next part of the, I guess, journey, kind of the end or midway through my, my story, I'd say, is when I decided to move on from playing was when I told them. And I, I guess I'll be honest. I told I knew I wasn't going to play hockey anymore when we had about – 20 games left in my last season and we were out for dinner at the same restaurant where I ended up seeing my hit three years prior at that point and 
It was so special to me to see my parents both agree with me and say, you know what, we were we weren't sure what you were going to do because pro hockey there was some opportunity and and I think I didn't even really know. We were all confused. So wait a second here. You made it. I managed <laughs> to come back, which we never thought would happen, and things went well, which we never thought would happen, and. You kind of have the option now, yeah. which we never thought would happen. <laughs> what's what's going on? And it wasn't really open context until I brought it up. I think we we're going to wait to see till the end of the season, and then and then I assume my parents would have brought it up. But I just knew it was time. I counted my blessings. I, I started to realize how the real world and the real hockey world works when it's not a a thing you do as a teenager; it's a job. And when I told my parents. And Dr. Mom uh, was just, you could see her shoulders drop <laughs> and how happy she was. But how proud she was, too, that we got through that journey together. And my dad was the same way. He was so, so happy that that worry would, would then be gone, that what if something ever happened. So that, that was pretty, pretty amazing because I, I, I was, it was nice to... You know, I you think I do. I owe my parents everything, especially my mom, and to give her that relaxation felt felt really nice. You mentioned your dad being Mister Positivity. You're obviously mm-hmm. a very positive guy. Um, is that where the positivity comes from, or did you have that before the injury? I would say I get it. I actually get it from both my parents. My dad might be a little. He might show it a little more. But as my mom puts it, which I really like, is she says she's an optimist, but she's also a realist which I think is so important today, which I could talk about later. But, um, yeah, my dad definitely is the individual that can push anything to the side and not let it bother him, a firefighter of, I don't know, 30 years or whatnot, and never brought work home with him, never had any issues. I'm sure saw things that I would never be able to see and be okay with. And he was just, he's the type of guy that says, yep, you know, you see things and you just put it behind you. It's part of life and you don't bring it with you. And definitely he's a, a big source of it because he shows it a lot. But then my mom brings in that side of we can be positive here, but let's also be realistic and let's look at our odds and let's look at how we can have some insurance and, and situations like that, which I think is important as well to have to just be optimistic with no plan or anything doesn't work either. So, um, yeah, I think I get it from both my parents. You talked along the path, Ben, about having 23 teammates motivating you, pushing you, and then chirping you when yes. it finally came back time to a get f- back on the ice. A weird form of motivation. Yeah, yeah but you know, whatever. It does. It does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those teammates along the way uh, was not very well known. I don't think he's accomplished much in the NHL yet. Uh, Gabriel Landeskog. Uh, Who? How- <laughs> Who? Don't send him this Gabriel. piece. Don't send him this part. Uh, how do you guys uh, stay in touch, and what's the relationship like today? We'll communicate in batches, really. It'll be every, maybe once a week, once every two weeks, either on FaceTime or text, which it, which works best for both of us. I, we both try to be on our phones less than we used to be when we played together, where it was... 24-7 on your phone. Social media was newer at the time. And so we both try to be off our phones and we'll, we'll communicate in, in batches because of that. And we actually support each other, oddly enough. There's been times where he's been in, we all have our ups and downs and times when he's having downs and 
reach out and we'll just chat and work things out, which is quite humbling. It's nice because he's one of my best friends, but at the same time, you th- you still think at the end of the day, this is the young one of the youngest captains and most character individuals I've ever met, yet we're discussing together about an issue that he has and I'm kind of helping and chipping in, which is which is pretty amazing and definitely vice versa. Whenever I have any ups and downs, he's one of the first guys I go to. And that relationship is pretty special to me. Then there's the other side of the coin where we just act like 12-year-olds too. But <laughs> I, I was going to leave that out, but I guess we'll be honest. It's That's the fun side too. And it was like that from day one when he came to the team he'd come to the rink and act like a 40 year old veteran of of hockey and um, and that's why he obviously is the leader that he is and then once you leave the rink it's like who let this guy off his leash he's nuts <laughs> so it's i think that balance is important and we definitely have a lot of fun together he joins me for the triathlon in milton every once in a while at the end of the season actually two summers ago he just left the this is how much he I guess cares are about our friendship too, but wants to support me and came out to the triathlon the first year I did it just to support me, and which was amazing, did not need to do that. And then two or three years later, I did it again, and he comes right out of season, didn't even train for it, and rented a bike <laughs> and did the triathlon with me. So that's, that's the kind of guy Gabe is, very simple, humble, and character guy. Coming out of season, doing a triathlon, quick story, but Gabe went to cover the team. And it was a uh, rookie camp, and he was there, and I was trying to find him, and I said, has anyone seen Landis Cog? And someone said, oh, he just finished the beep test. He's over there on the bike. I said, you just finished the beep test, and you're on the bike? Pardon? <laughs> His sweat just poured out. He was going hard, too. I was like, you're a machine. So you're obviously into working out. You enjoy that. You, we talked about 40. Uh, who's better in the gym, you or Gabe? Um, hmm. How do I answer this? I'd say it's a it's good because it's very, very similar. I was lucky enough to train with him in Sweden with his trainer, and they train differently and in a really cool cool way where it's less getting under the bar like we tend to do here in North America and lifting the biggest dumbbell you can. And they, They're more about movement, explosiveness, and he kind of already naturally has the you know, barrel chest and the, he's a bigger, bigger set guy naturally strong so he already has that naturally and then trains his quickness and explosiveness all the time in Stockholm that really he has the best of both worlds so it's pretty it's fun it's definitely fun training with him I'd say for strength potentially only because I train it more I may be a little bit in the specific strength like I'm talking five reps seven reps something under 10 I think explosiveness and speed and agility he may take the cake but i would 100 percent be ready to test it if he wanted to so he knows that yes (laughs) yes more more or less though we're we're very similar and it's fun to train with with someone like that because it's every other day someone's different guys are winning or Mm -hmm. however you want to put it you said earlier that you knew with about 20 games to go in your final season with the rangers that hockey was over Uh, but here you are now back on the ice in some capacity as an assistant coach with the University of Waterloo Warriors men's hockey team. And there was a time, if I'm not mistaken, along the path that there might have been consideration of getting into officiating on the ice. Uh, at what point did you think that maybe, or that you consciously decided to stay around the game at least? 
That's a good question because initially I thought I'm done playing. I want to get separated from it. I love it and still respect it and watch it and support my buddies, but I want to get into other things. And when I realized I could do both, that's when I thought, okay, this is going to be pretty cool. When I first finished playing and the opportunity came to me, actually, I wasn't looking for it, was for officiating and started to at least open my mind to that. I thought there's no way. And then some people in the hockey world were convincing me, you know, it's a great lifestyle. You get to travel, usually paid for, and it's a pretty good salary, so on and so forth. And I, at this point, I'm starting to think long-term about my life. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. Maybe it's something I fall in love with. I had a really cool opportunity to go to the refing combine in Buffalo for the NHL refing combine and meet a lot of great people, a lot of refs that threw me in the box a couple of times, <laughs> which was really funny and a great experience. And then I got back and just wasn't, I love to communicate and I want to communicate for a living. I want to speak and convey meaning and whether, whether that's through coaching or teaching or whatever, I, it's something I feel I'm decent at and something I want to pursue as much as I can. But to me, refing wasn't quite that. Who, as you know, sometimes it's often one-sided. <laughs> and that's what I was starting to experience even at the older minor league level and thought, There's only, you know, this is only going to get worse and, uh, in that area. Mind you, there's some people that are built for it. There are some amazing refs that, I mean, now you see with people mic'd up in the NHL, how well they communicate and can calm a situation down, calm a player down and get the job done and are respected for it. I felt that wasn't necessarily for me. And then Sean Regan, who was a billet with the Kitchener Rangers, billeted a lot of my buddies. He's also the women's coach at University of Waterloo. And he asked if I wanted to come help the D out, the defenseman out on his team. So every once a week or every other week, I would go over and work with the defenseman and really had a lot of fun. He has a really cool group of girls there, and they all care so much, and it's really cool to be a part of. So I thought, okay, I'll do this again next year. This is fun. And I texted him and said, if if I can even help out a little more, I would be more than happy to. And at the same time, basically the same week, I started helping out with the summer camps at the University of Waterloo. And that's when I ran into the head coach, Brian Bork, and he said there was an assistant coach job opening up for the second assistant and said to think about applying. At this point, it was still not guaranteed. He thought, see what his resume says, what your interests are, go through the interview. And one thing led to another. I was the second assistant that year. And then last year, or over the summer, the job of the full-time assistant opened up and Borky asked if I wanted to apply for that and did the exact same thing and you know I have to go through the interview process and everything just as everyone else did and was lucky enough to get the job so this is my first year as the assistant coach of the men's hockey team at the University of Waterloo and it's now I've fallen in love with it so funny how you leave the game and think no it's not for me and then you get a little bit of an opportunity and yeah I've I've Really fall in love with it. So, do you take any Steve Spot into that role? One hundred percent. It's funny. I even reached up this year. We were having some trouble on our five on three, and I remember. I'm sure you remember the play we used to run, and maybe they still do it. I don't know. Where 
I think we ended up calling it the Landeskog because it would always yep. end up on yeah. his. Yep. Yeah, it was almost. And with the lineup we had with Aki and Jed and all those boys, it was almost like I, I would just know up top. I wouldn't even watch. I would just wait to hear the goal horn go off because I knew we were going to score. It was just so much talent on the ice. So that's the play. And I said, Sparta, can you remind me of how we used to run that? And um, he was generous enough to to chat with me and talk me through it. Um, and then we ran it two weeks later, and it worked perfectly. <laughs> so there is a little bit of that, and I'm I'm in charge of the penalty kill, which is what I love to do when I played as well. So that was that's it's a lot of fun. I take a lot of pride in that, and um, I'd say the coolest thing of it, though, a part of it, is being around that group of people. The character of you know you have guys that are in nanotechnology at the University of Waterloo playing hockey. Like those are the kind of people I want to involve myself <laughs> with. So it's amazing. We have another player, Mitch Elliott, who played out in the WHL. Actually, five years in the WHL was, and I hate to use the term because it's not fair, but a you know a heavyweight uh, power forward, we'll say, and had some pro opportunity. Decided to go to school instead. Now he's at the University of Waterloo playing for the men's team and is applying to optometry. And it's just amazing. And I think people need to hear, people in the hockey world need to hear more stories about that where you can play five years and have tons of fun, but then transition out and still live a great life. Like there's someone getting in a program that people fly around the world to get into, and it's a hockey player or a jock in quotations that, you know, aren't smart. And here's a, someone that has quite a few fights and may be known for that in this <clears throat> hockey world, in the hockey world, but just a genius and, and someone that's going to, I hope, get into the opt-on program and then you know help a lot of people so it's just kind of being around people like that is really really cool i think you mentioned the jock i think that stereotype's gone almost now especially major junior players because you need to be so smart the game has come so far that a lot of the video work and stuff like that takes a lot i think you're a big proponent of that you've obviously smart guy taking that jock thing and throwing it out the window um is that something that you're obviously proud of yeah, I wouldn't. I'd, I mean, when even when I speak, I'd be the first to say academically, and the university, I guess the education system right now, I wouldn't be the most fit for it. If that's how you put it, I don't necessarily learn that way. I get through school, and it's it's all good. But the I guess the message I like to get across is that there the transition out of sport is possible. It's definitely not easy. I know I was there three and a half years ago and the emotion and everything going through your head of, I can't stop playing. This Mm -hmm. is what I do. This is who I am. And it's the fact that more important than than getting through school or even getting into school, maybe you don't pursue school and you find another passion and a trade or another way to to work, which people do and are successful without education. The the biggest message I like to share is that transition out of sports possible. You don't have to keep playing the game because you feel obligated to do to do so or you think you can't do other things. Again, if you have the support that I was lucky enough to receive and support from people in the hockey world that are saying the same thing that you know you can transition out. I did it and it it was it's great and I'm happy and that's to me the more important message than being academically inclined or, or academically skilled, however you want to put it. It's it's the transition out of sports possible, and it's an issue I see we see today. That individuals keep playing and playing because they don't believe they can move on, and 
I something I hope I can I can help with one day. I don't know if I'll how much impact I'll have, but I think it's something I'd like to to share with others that may be struggling with that. It's it's a tough situation to be in, right? It's everything mm-hmm. you ever did, and then you're set thinking, should I? How will I ever live without it? So, yeah, but that, that the yeah the big message is that transition's totally totally possible. Yeah, one of the other. Uh titles I fully intended to use when describing you and didn't at the beginning. Have I finished introducing Ben yet? I'm not <laughs> I think sure. we're still trying to figure out who we're talking to. Uh, <laughs> philanthropist. And I think that is extremely fitting for you for any number of reasons. Not the least of which, coming out and supporting my favorite cause in the Farwell for Hire campaign. And there, the, he did all the high spots when we painted that house. He did all the high you spots. You did the precision spots, it's, I did the height. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> Why? Why do you give back the way that you do? I think there's a, there's a currency or value to giving back. And I think there's even, I don't have it with me, but I think there's science to support it. When you have the, not recognition, when you can, um, when you realize you help someone, that impact and how it affects you on a, you know, molecular level or whatnot there's there's so many benefits to it and i think i've just been conditioned to conditioned to that and seek out how can i feel that again what what's the next thing i can do to feel how good it feels when we painted that lady's house and i left there <laughs> and i'm like nice i'm in my car i'm driving around get the music going i'm happy as could be happier than times when i've done so many other things that you think would make me happier it's i think i've yeah i think i've just been conditioned to that that feeling and if i would say it's an addiction to that feeling i think it'd be a decent addiction to have but yeah i don't know how i really got into it completely i think part of it could have been it was it felt good when i wasn't playing and it filled the void of the satisfaction of playing that from there just and then i was helping people that went through similar things as i did with head injury and that just turned into well, if I can help people with head injuries, I can help people with other things. And that's, I think that's how it all started was. Mm-hmm. Did that uh, philanthropy outlook and just overall positivity, was that there before the injury or did that, did the, the incident we talked about, did that change who you were? I think it furthered it because in grades seven and eight, I was already doing some, some charity stuff and helping out with the kids at school that had different learning disabilities and already started to get a lot out of that. I think the situation, though, just furthered it and really gave me a platform to to further it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that I wanted to. It was that plus now I'm a part of a community group that has a lot of resources and opportunities. Um, and then problem, my other problem in life is never saying no to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so when you mix that all together in that equation, you get a cool opportunity in a community where support is needed and everyone chips in. So, um, yeah, I think it was always there, but just the lay of the land and how things played out helped Mm -hmm. me further that. You said earlier, Ben, that uh, maybe that optimistic outlook is is more important now than ever. What makes it so important today? I think it's, it's important because all... I've realized life is as I go through school and now I work and speak with these people on when I when I do the podcast that we talked about people that have been through adversity that's really all 
life, and I don't want to get too deep here, but that's, I've realized, is all life is from, you can go as far as, for me, waking up in the hospital with no idea how I got there. Yes, that's a form of adversity, but so is when your alarm goes off at 6 a.m. and you have somewhere to be at 7 and you want to be there 5 to 10 minutes early because that's going to make everything better, really. You're, the person's going to be more thankful for that. It's going to make the conversation better, which then maybe you'll get the deal. So it's exponential. So it could be just getting up for your alarm, but that's adversity that we, as people, have to get over. And there's So those are the two ends of the spectrum, simple and, and super complicated types of adversity. And that's where I think optimism, integrity, all those things today are so important. We're in a world where we're told to to run from from adversity and, and failure, especially, holy smokes, no one's allowed to fail anymore. And if people knew all the things you said when you introduced me, half of those were just failure, failure, failure. Oh, it works, <laughs> it works a little bit. Okay, let's keep going with it. And then it fails, and then you move on to something else. And that's any story. Like, look at any famous person, any successful person, and we get... We get stuck on the end point that people get to, like Zuckerberg or Jobs or McDonald's. Like the, if you look back through their history, it, all it was was adversity, adversity, adversity. Finally, something clicked, and yeah, for them, they it blew up. Um, so it's it's interesting, and and be working with youth nowadays, it's it's frustrating because failure is never really allowed, and that the independence of it of of dealing with failure on your own and accepting that it's okay, it's okay to fail, it's okay to be upset, all those things that are just primitive or innate or a part of life, um, we're we're being told nowadays to to run from that and you know spend more time at the gym that will cover it up or spend more time doing yoga that will that will fix the issues or and sometimes it's just let's face it head on let's find ten people or some close buddies that can support me. And and let's get through this. And then when we come out on the other side, now if that uh, issue happens again, okay, now I just revert back to the script that I just wrote because I just got through it. And and I just that's yeah, that's where I think optimism so so important today. But you also need the realistic side too, as I, as I said, where you, where you have that plan and you you don't just pretend everything's okay. You yeah, this sucks. This does. <laughs> the and side you learned from your mother. Yes. Yeah. The, yes. The, the realist. Yes, exactly. And that's that's what I'm trying to get to. And the the people I've met with so far, and, and you know Amber, and she's just absolutely incredible. Other other guests I had too that have been through other illnesses. And um, Brett McLean had to stop playing hockey because he had a heart attack. Nick Nezick ha- had cancer twice, battled through it, got an engineering degree at the University of Waterloo. Um, an individual had an eating disorder for close to 20 years, got through it, and now is just like doing everything that scares her because it keeps her healthy and in a good mindset. So all these people that have overcome these issues, again, bigger forms of adversity, you could say, but it was just accepting what the situation was. Yes, this sucks. Had support, had a plan, got through it. And now the life lessons they have are just, they leave me speechless. Like I think on every podcast I've done with them, every interview I've done with them, I just say, okay, we're done. You just boggled my mind. Like that's so amazing kind of thing. And again, it was, Nothing fancy, nothing special. It was just the willingness to approach adversity and find a way through it. So I can certainly attest to Amber, who's very close. I, I feel like she's a, 
a little sister to me. She's got cystic fibrosis, and the outlook really is phenomenal. She reminds me, she reminds me an awful lot of my sister, uh, because well, I mean, both my sisters obviously, but my youngest in particular, uh, because she knew what she was facing, and and Amber knows currently what she's facing, and we're working our butts off to change that. But she recognizes that she has a terminal illness, so she's facing a premature death for somebody uh, at her stage of life. But yet she really just, she focuses on what she can control and soldiers on. It's pretty, it's pretty damn inspirational. Yeah. It's, I get shivers just hearing yeah. about it. She was, she was unbelievable. The, as you said too, control what you can control was one of her other messages that were, that really stuck with me. And I would say if you, if you're scared of something, it's almost better to not approach it, not totally understand it, and just leave it alone. I think that would be most people's instinct. If something mm-hmm. scares you, like a scary movie, okay, I don't want to see how it ends. I'll just ignore it, leave it, run away from it, and I'll never deal with it. But then you think next time a similar fear, now you don't know how to rationalize or deal with your emotion that comes with that. And, she, and it, this is one of the times where she left me speechless. She said that she actually likes to understand it more and understand what she's going through more so and have a more wholesome understanding in every detail and understand everything so that she can then accept it and live with it and deal with it. That's and wild. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, holy, that is just... And in the, within the situation she's in, is just incredible. And it takes... That's, I think that, is, that has to be the definition of toughness, like totally accepting what is, wanting to, wanting to understand it, then finding a way to accept it and then find a way through it was, was I think, the biggest message she left with me that, you know, is ch- going to change me forever. It, it was pretty, pretty incredible. That's just one of a few uh, Heroic Mind podcasts you've done. Yeah. W- was, is that the kind of thing you were looking for when you started Heroic Minds? Were you looking to inspire others through other people's stories? Yeah, that's, really, that's, 100% and not necessarily someone going through that same issue, but another life lesson that could come from it where like Amber, for example, her, are we going through the same thing? No, but her messages are going to change me forever. And then hopefully the other people that listened, it's going to change them as well and make them better, which talking to her, that's her goal is to, to make everyone and ev- everyone in a better spot, people she knows and people she doesn't know, especially people with CF. And, and I know she's doing that 100%. The other cool thing about um, heroic minds is that it's it's about the how do I say this the hero's journey is interesting because how do I put this Um, hmm I think well, what I learned with concussion was it wasn't necessarily the research that makes a difference, that made a difference for me and that makes a difference for other people that reach out to me on Instagram and Twitter and email and say, you know what, I've, been, I've had a concussion for a year or two years and it doesn't seem to be getting better. Re- yes, research can help. Medicine and drugs and, and knowledge and education and all that can help. But what I find makes the biggest difference in any adversity across the board is resonating with someone that's been through it. 
and that's almost sparked healing powers in itself. With with people I've met with with concussion, they say, you know, what did you do or how did you get better kind of thing. And I tell them my story and what I did. And I think the biggest thing that makes an impact on them or gives them the optimism and courage to keep going is that, you know, he ended up on the other side. He got through it and made it. And whether that be CF or whether that be cancer, whether that be job loss, depression, different topics I've discussed on the podcast, yes, it, it again, it has the lessons for everyone. But what it really does is people that are going through it, because unfortunately there's people all over going through it, that person went through it and they, they made it to the other side. And I think that's what can be really moving and powerful for people is that someone they can resonate with that's been through it and, and found a way triumphantly and living with it or, or living without it now because they've gotten over it. So that's what the cool thing to me I've realized with concussion and, and I'm starting to see that that relates to other issues too is that we like to hear when other people have done it and got through it. Who inspires you? Someone that inspires me is definitely my, I mean, I have a tattoo on my chest now for him, is my grandfather that, and, and in the same way, Gabe and, and another friend, Mark Shifley, who we've, we know of, being humble is, I think, one of the toughest things to do, especially nowadays, where there's signs everywhere telling you to show off and signs everywhere telling you, you have to show how, value you are, or how valuable you are or you're going to fall off. I mean, social media is one obvious example. And my grandfather was so humble and how successful he was when he passed away and my mom was left in charge of his estate. Um, we didn't know at all how much valuables he had or, you know, the way he lived his life was so humble for how he could have otherwise. And was so simple. He Biking was his favorite. Like, I can't even understand this. Biking was his favorite thing to do ever, bar none, nothing else he liked more than biking. His bike was older than me. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I, I, when he passed away, I grabbed the bike and, and I, I'm saving it to, to sandblast it and hang it on my wall and put a picture in, in between the, the frame. But So nowadays, if we think about it yourselves even, you have a hobby that you love more than anything. You are going to get the best yeah. of the best so that you can enjoy if you're a guitarist you're buying the best guitar you can so that you can just rock out mm-hmm. it's uh, hockey we buy the best skates because that's our things so we buy the best stick biking was his favorite thing and he could have bought whatever bike he wanted his bike was older than me been fixed a hundred times and duct tape on it it was just you know rusted and, and he, he the week he passed away he biked 80k up north he, he had a biking group he was a part of 85 years old um, flu heart attack, um, and what else did he do? He did surg- dental surgery on a cat because he was a veterinarian. <laughs> so he still had a steady enough hand. This is I, all in the same week. I like that you added that he was a vet. Like, yeah, he, like, he did dental surgery on a cat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not just he doesn't not do it out of his backyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was licensed to do so. Yeah. Everything's fine. Yeah. It's okay. Cash deals only. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and then he uh, the other thing he did he lived across the street from us so he had a always had a running competition with my dad of who had a nicer lawn. So he also cut his lawn that, that day, and, or that week, sorry. And then passed away when no one was around, no one could help him. And just the most selfless, humble guy, I thought, if there's a way I'm going to go, I want to do it just like that. Do everything he loved the last week. I almost think, did he, did he know it was coming? No one was around. And that was so crazy because he said bye to everyone. 
That's the uh, that's the yeah that's the kicker. I went to camp in New York. My parents came to see me in New York. My brother went on a cruise with his girlfriend, and when everyone left for these events, he had said bye to everyone, just like hey, see you again, like yeah. like normal. Yeah. So, went for dinner with all of his daughters, his four daughters, and that week went for dinner with all of them. And I'm thinking, what? Weird. Doesn't it make you wonder, it Ben? Does, about, it does. I have yeah. one question I could ask. Yeah. And that's where I just. Again, his whole his whole journey through life and work ethic, fitness, and how humble he was, and then the way he it was a beautiful way to go in a way, right? We if you the glass half full type way of looking at it, and so he's definitely someone I look up to, yeah, or, or inspires me. Yeah, we uh, we started the podcast with a laundry list of okay. ways to introduce you. We've mentioned it a couple <laughs> times through. Um, if the my question to you is. Of those things, and maybe it's something that we didn't list, what are you most proud of in what you've accomplished in life? Because there's a lot. <laughs> I think the thing I'm most proud of is that... Like if we were to introduce, or I'm just going to cut you off, I know you have the answer, but yeah. if we were going to introduce you again, how would you want to be known? I would say something to do with what led me to heroic minds. And the, I, I like the word philanthropist, but it's kind of fancy. So I would want something more low key, you know, the guy that does his part. Like I used to be my Twitter. Yeah, bio. I was just gonna say, I, 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 and I remember that I almost stole it too because it's so good. Can, just can, doing my part. Just doing yeah. my part. Which, good. if you think about it, if everyone did that, you know, things might be. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I make mistakes and do the wrong thing all the time. But um, I'd say just the guy that's doing his part. I like simple, humble. And and then the heroic minds thing I'm extremely proud of only because my work to this point, there's no monetary value to show for it, but that gives me an outlet to, sh- to share my story and now give me some validity in helping others share their story, which is, which is really cool. Going back to that idea of, of feeling an impact and having an impact, which I, which I get when I get to talk to these amazing people like yourselves as well. Um, Pandering, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I think where, what I was going to say was with the something to do with the heroic minds piece is more just accumulative, accumulatively the people that I'm able to now positively impact, and whether that be through my story or helping others share theirs is is pretty cool. And again, just doing my part, right? So. Um, yeah, that's mm. when we uh, when we started this thing, the Farwell and Pope podcast. I mean, which by the way needs a much better name. I mean, we've got heroic minds heroic in studio. Mind and and Farwell and, Farwell and Pope. Pope. I mean, there's not too much ego over here on this side of the studio. Is there? What else? What, what's that about? Humble? <laughs> Never heard of it. What are you talking Just about? Malone loves it though. He talks about it all the time <laughs> at the rink. He's you, always like, "When are you going on the Popecast? When are you going on the Popecast?" <laughs> Do you call like, him Mayday, by the way? Because that's my nickname for him, Mayday Malone. Like, again, a TV series, you wouldn't know because you're too young. But there was a character, Sam Malone, and it was Mayday Malone. He used to be a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox in the TV series. But I, So I call Cody Mayday Malone because I think it's a great nickname. Mayday but, Malone, that's yeah. good. We'll bring that's it to the good. rink. But okay. I think it was Zach Coulter, who plays on our team, gave Cody the nickname Code Red. Oh, Code that's Red. good, too. Which yeah. he... 
absolutely loves. He calls him. He refers to himself <laughs> as Code, Code Red, Red all the time. And then now he's just whatever colors on your mind. Sometimes he's Code Black. Sometimes he's Code Blue. <laughs> and he goes by all of them anyway. So that's actually a really cool situation, having him a part of the Waterloo Warriors men's team. He, I guess for... Do we go over that story? No, we haven't even no, talked no, about no, Cody yeah. other than so, this. So. Okay, so Cody, for those for people listening, I guess, um, he's a, uh, he has learning disabilities, and he, yeah. I met him years ago with the Ice Hounds in town, and we've kind of been in touch briefly. And when, I, when he heard that I started working at University of Waterloo, he reached out and said, hey, can I come help out? And I said, yeah, for sure. I checked with the athletic director and the head coach, and they're like, 100%. He came to the team, and at first, I wasn't sure how long it was going to be. Is he just pop it in every once in a while? And it started as, yeah, once a week or once every other week. And I knew him, so I would joke around with him. But the guys on the team were just super nice, respectful to him. But I'd be chirping him yeah, and course. treating him like one of the boys. <laughs> and um, then, that, and that was all last year. And then this year, Cody and I got even closer. I'm driving him to the ring, picking him up every once in a while. And we've literally become, like, best friends. <laughs> and same with the guys on the team. So now that the guys saw me interact with him in a way that I interact with anyone else, I don't treat him any different yeah. than anyone else. He has become, he's come so far with his, his ability to speak, his ability to understand sarcasm, deliver sarcasm, everything. It's just, like, my head coach and I will sit in the office after we just had a conversation with him, and we were, we're almost speechless how far he's come is just incredible just from being it wasn't it's not school and yeah. maybe it, he is at school as well though um, but just i think being around the group and having to communicate and and somewhat fend for himself in a room of <laughs> hockey players that treat him like everyone else and i think he enjoys that and it's just pretty it's pretty amazing he's uh it's cool to see how how far he's come and i know he absolutely loves it he texts me every day are we going to the rink tomorrow are we going on the ice we what are we doing tomorrow and is starting to take on more and more responsibilities as well. Um, one really clear example of how far he's come. Last year, we asked him to give a speech to the team. I remember that. And I said, Cody, you know, do you know what you want to say? And he's like, no, I don't, I'm not sure. And I said, well, here's three things you can say. Here are the three guys that are, like, for starting lineup. Here are the three guys that are going to be on forward. Can you remember them and, and say that? And he, I think it was more out of, insecurity or fear that he he wasn't quite able to execute it perfectly and I kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said oh yeah that's so and so and then he would say that name and you know the confidence wasn't quite there but again it was still for him it was amazing for for um, where he's come and then this year and not a word of a lie twice now I said Cody do you want to this was post game like Cody do you want to give a post game speech he said oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah I didn't give him a script. I didn't tell him what to say at all. No one did. Didn't even have time to prepare anything to say at all. Walks into the change room full of the team and addresses the whole team. Team's quiet. And he says, I, it was, you know what, boys? You played with a lot of heart tonight. It was after a big win. A lot of heart tonight. A lot of character. Let's keep this going and do it again tomorrow night. Great job, boys. And then the whole room just erupted. And I was thrown off because here's, you know, 365 days ago, there was no chance that would have happened, and he's just come so far from being around 
a great group of guys and, and chipping in wherever he can. So. He's a beauty. He's a beauty. Yes. And he also volunteers with game night staff at the Rangers. Well, yeah. he used to. Now he's so busy with his Warriors yes. gig, right? I'm yeah. giving but, him uh, the gears. I'm like, you're never here anymore. Oh, I got Warriors. I got Warriors. Yeah. I said, We're you tell Fanatics, you got to share. He wants a piece of Mayday, too, yeah. or a Code Red. Yes. Code Red. Mayday, I love I, that. I had, I had started down that path uh, to bring this back around to hockey, which you brilliantly did, because that's <laughs> kind of what we were intending uh, when we first started this podcast. So if we take you back to your days in the OHL, the teammates aside and the camaraderie, anything you miss about the OHL experience? I miss the lifestyle. Teammates aside, whatever, not you know joking around with the teammates or anything. I missed, especially my first two years, even though I didn't play, I guess you being in university too, but the schedule of going to class, going to the rink, and kind of being, not walking around with a chip on your shoulder, but walking around knowing I got things to do. Like, this is exciting. I come to class, and then I leave class because I get to go to, quote-unquote, work. I get to go, you know. And that, that I miss, having that. And I did, But I think I'm, I'm filling that void with other things I'm trying to do. Like I said, failing at a bunch of things and what works, throw things at the wall, see what sticks. And I think that's how I'm filling that void. But I definitely miss miss that, especially in Kitchener, where you'd have an action-packed day of up for high school or up for university, you're at the rink, you're there for three or four hours, and then you have a community event, and you get home and you're gassed, and I had an unbelievable billet family uh, get to spend time with that night, and then same thing again the next day. And for someone that wanted to chase hockey, it was the, it's the dream. Almost to the point where I think... And I've never played pro hockey, so I wouldn't know, but hearing from a lot of my buddies that do... Junior is, those are the best four or five years. Once you get into professional hockey, yes, the money's the, the money's nice, but the lifestyle's different, and you don't have twenty three buddies to go on mall walks with or go to class with, or and um, yeah, I wouldn't say that John Gibson and I stayed awake for the total length of all the lectures, but we went to all of them, <laughs> which was good, <laughs> and and stuff like that was was really cool. I missed that for sure. At the same time, though, I, I was blessed and lucky with the opportunity to enjoy it, and that's what I remember. I try not to dwell on on missing that. I think, especially as a as a Kitchener Ranger, that lifestyle is there, right? You you walk into a mall, you could be, you could play, you could have played three games and been on the fourth line and had six shifts. You walk into a mall, someone's like, "Great game last night, Chris." You're like, "How do you know who I am?" Mm-hmm. Right? And what what was that like as a as a teenager going through having that? Notoriety and people knowing, and even now, like it's it's a little easier to comprehend now, I'm sure. But as a teenager, how tough was that? It's pretty you. Oh, it's pretty surreal at first because you're thinking, "Are you talking to me?" Yeah. <laughs> you almost look behind you, like there must be another Ben behind me or something. And when I first realized it was when I would go to games and there's a Timmy's right by the rink, and I'd pick up a coffee before the game. And one time I went in there the lady working there said, hey, Ben, best of luck tonight. You know, coffee's on me. And I thought, what? What just happened? <laughs> Looking around like, Ashton, where are you? Ashton Kutcher, get out of here. Am I being punk? <laughs> so I literally stopped on, the, on my way out and I thought, what? And uh, that was... Did you pay for the coffee? Am y- I going to get in trouble? Yes, yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to... Do I drink it? I don't know. Yeah. And, and that was one... That was the... F- that was very early on. I wasn't playing, and and I was still going to the rink, though, like I said. I moved back with the team, so I wasn't playing. Like you said, played six games, 
I guess because of what I went through, people knew more or less, but still not to the point where I deserved a, a free, free coffee. coffee. I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't Jeff Skinner putting up 50 rips in a season. So he, he would get got a couple more of the coffee. I was going to say, yeah, I think he got some shares in Tim's for <laughs> as well as how well he performed. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the first time. And then the one thing that kind of, I guess, took the shock and awe away from it was when I started going out to so many schools and community events, even when I wasn't playing, that at that point I thought the reason they're saying hi is because I've met them somewhere <laughs> or I was a part of an organization and they saw something. that. So at that point it made more sense when I started to really get involved in the community that, that people had that notoriety obviously very humbling and still today being involved in the community it's it's somewhat similar and again it's not for any special skills or talents i have anything like that it's purely just being involved enough i think that my name's still kind of out there so coach this waterloo warriors team mm-hmm. how are uh, how are things at my alma mater and <laughs> you know why should people come out and watch cis hockey or i didn't know you went sports? to waterloo oh yeah I, I don't talk about it much I, I i faked my way through it but yeah class of 96 nice. my friend oh, yeah, nice. he, he went there he didn't grab like yeah. he just went <laughs> no, so oh you went the you walk, once, yeah. go to the starbucks there right, yeah, yeah, get went, a shirt yeah. right <laughs> went to pick up a friend once and now he's like oh my alma mater i couldn't find the building he was going to school in uh, it's, it's like I said, so fun being around these dynamic individuals that are, they have hockey, but boy, do they have so many other cool things going on that it, it's fun. The one thing we, I guess, could be better at is scoring this year. We haven't been, we haven't been able to really put the puck in the net and everything else, we're lit, we're executing everything awesome. We're out shooting teams, we're out chancing teams and it's interesting. We're we're just having trouble scoring, and it's one of those things. We're not getting as many bounces, and it's not really. It's frustrating, but it's not as if we get home from the game and we're myself when I go through video or when the head coach goes through video. We don't have much to say. Do this better. Do this. We're getting chances. Good things are happening. Games are exciting. They're all most games are at American League pace. Like it's really good hockey, and things are going well. But just on the scoreboard, it's not. So it's it's a really weird situation because usually you don't do well. It's, there's a blatant. There are a bunch of blatant errors and issues that have. We got to go bag skate and we got to go figure this out. After games, we're almost we're sitting in the coach's room going through video and everyone's executing. Everyone's doing their job. We get an open net and we hit the post. We get an open <laughs> net and we miss by two inches. So it, that's that's where we're at. But it's it's been a lot of fun because. Yeah, are we all searching for the answer to to fix the, you know, to make our record a little better? Yes, but at the same time, guys are executing. They're having fun. Um, I love going to work every day. So and it keeps you going because you're looking for that answer, right? Yes, yeah, one hundred percent, totally. And it's I've learned a lot actually because of that. Is if if we were winning every game and and we didn't and there were probably mistakes that would happen even when we won i wouldn't be learning as much because i wouldn't need to watch videos closely oh you win no let's just keep going let's keep running Mm -hmm. with it keep doing what we're doing if it ain't broke and because we're always looking for something to be better i've gotten better as a coach thinking how can we be uh three centimeters better today and three centimeters again the next day because we have to be because something we're not winning so we got to be better somehow so we're just really wrenching out the cloth trying to get every everything out of um 
our ability to coach, I guess, or, or mine. I know Borky's unbelievable and devotes so much time to making this every every player better that I'm just trying to follow suit. So You're a little older than them, but not too much. Uh, most of them, a, couple, sure. a couple of the same age, and then yeah. one... I think we have one player, two players that are a year older, but yeah, okay. roughly the same age, and then the rest are can, younger. Can you still snipe a few past the tendy? <laughs> um, Maybe if you give me shot. enough time. <laughs> and, if they, and what I do when, when we do the shootout is I let everyone go first so that I get the goalies when they're just gassed. gassed yeah, yeah, for so sure. That's, yeah. Legs cramping up. Exactly. Yeah. I wasn't a goal scorer, so I know how to, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, take you advantage do the little of things. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, uh, in a million years, for probably almost a million reasons, I never <laughs> would have thought this kid I met as a rookie with the Kitchener Rangers all those years ago. Uh, we'd be sitting here for a conversation like this today. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and uh, slumming it with our podcast, Mr. Heroic Minds. <laughs> Thanks for this, Ben. If you can think of a better name for our <laughs> podcast. You've that's got some exciting, pretty good names, India, in your companies that you've had. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. exciting, though. So wait, you guys actually are looking for a... Right now, it's just simple, just names? Yeah. Firewall and Pope Podcast. But that's that's pretty, like... That's like James Bond, though. That's just nice and simple and straight <laughs> out there. Yeah. But you guys want something creative? If you got some ideas, Fidel's, we'll take it. Well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I don't okay. know. We'll, maybe we'll see what Cody's got in mind. Say, I was going to say, well, yeah. well, that's my owner. Maybe we should just rename it Code Red. Code, I was, Red. Code Red, right? That's where my mind was going. Yeah. <laughs> Code Shoot, Red Podcast. And the Rangers are red. Yeah. And you've got red lights flashing everywhere around yeah, here that, right that, now. That, those are go. the on-air lights. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. Progress. It's progress. <laughs> ben, thanks a lot, man. We, I could sit here and do another hour with you. You're very well spoken, obviously, and uh, we, we appreciate it. If any, yeah, you can come talk anytime you want, man. Cool. Well, no, thank you so much for having me. This was this is awesome, and I would love to come back. So, if the opportunity ever comes, um, and maybe vice versa. Re- real, real Remember, quick, he just, said that he's coming back if yeah. we ask him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> real, real quick, um, just. Give us a rundown of everything you're doing right now, and if anybody wants to follow you and keep up with what you're doing, what do they do? Where do they go? The easiest way would be social media. It's just Ben. If you search Ben Finale on Twitter or Instagram, you'd be able to find me. Um, the other thing is Heroic Minds is heroicminds.live, and what I do with that website is I post blogs every once in a while, similar, similar to the conversations we had today about optimism and adversity, and then I post the podcasts up there as well with individuals telling their stories and then the one thing i just started posting was because i had a lot of people reach out just asking what i do for work exercise every day and i always switch it up and it's nothing fancy but people seem to like seeing what i'm doing so i started sharing my exercises and workouts Um, so if people are interested in that they can it's all on the website and a little bit of my stories on there so yeah. I, I can read the exercises, but can I do them? Talk about positivity right there, right? <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do a farewell for higher workout day. Oh, oh dear. Can good. we do that before the month of May comes around? Because, Fennel, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I don't know if I'm going to make it this year. I want to see him do a chin up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, buddy. This Thank has been you great. so much. Thanks. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast, and NBC Sports. 
Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.